Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. I'm Cathy Jacobs, president of the ACOI, and it is a huge privilege for me to host this podcast. This podcast is the first in a series of episodes entitled The Voice of Compliance. The focus on this series is to give experts in the disciplines of compliance an opportunity to share their expertise and experience in their respective areas. We hope you will enjoy and find these episodes useful as we get insights from practitioners in managing conduct risk, AML and data protection. Conduct risk is a concept that many, if not all of our listeners are familiar with and may indeed work in. But just to recap, it is broadly defined as any action of a firm or individual that leads to customer detriment or has an adverse effect on market stability or even competition. So it applies to both retail and wholesale market behaviours. Regulators all over the world have been increasing their regulatory focus on conduct and culture since the global financial crisis and following significant misconduct in both retail and wholesale players. Since the global financial crisis, the response here in Ireland has resulted in, among other things, enhancements to the CPC, improved protection for mortgage holders in arrears and enhanced protection for SMEs, changes to the macro prudential lending limits and the consumer protection risk assessment model to enhance the Central Bank of Ireland's supervisory approach for regulatory firms in relation to conduct and consumer protection risk management. There has also been significant focus at EU level with product governance guidelines, MCD, IDD, MIFID II, PRIPS legislation, to name just a few. I am delighted to welcome as a guest, Kean Caldwell, Head of Conduct Risk and Compliance Advisory, KBC Bank Ireland, and member of the SCOI Consumer Protection Working Group, to discuss with me today some important conduct talking points. As Head of Conduct Risk within KBC Ireland, Kean's primary responsibility is the design and operating effectiveness of the bank's conduct risk management framework. Prior to joining KBC Bank Ireland in July 2018, Kean was a director in the banking regulation practice of BDO UK based in London, where Kean specialised in delivering the UK's Prudential Regulatory Authority, Financial Conduct Authority, Skilled Person, Regulatory Investigations and Regulatory Remediation Programmes in the areas of corporate governance, operational risk, conduct of business, credit risk and financial crime. And he assisted clients in the design and implementation of accountability frameworks to address the requirements of the UK senior manager and certification regimes. Kean is here to discuss with me today what is conduct risk and the role of the compliance professional and the role of the first line in defence in managing conduct risk. Welcome to the Compliance Files podcast, Kean, and thanks for talking to us today. Cheers, Cathy. Kean, if we could just begin with how did you get into conduct risk as a career and what drew you to it? Thanks. Um, I think that's it's a pretty good question to start with. I mean, my own journey began, so I would have trained with a, a big four firm in in, in Dublin as a entrant before moving over to London. Not dissimilar to, to, I guess, other people as well. I guess I was at a bit of a juncture in terms of what I wanted to do next. I, I guess I didn't really want to go down the financial accounting route of kind of um, month end, quarter end, year end accounting. And I had an opportunity to join probably a, a slightly 
slightly smaller firm where the role would be a, a combination of regulatory investigations and audit. And I guess once I began to get exposure to some of those kind of probably more high profile regulatory investigations with the with the Dan FSA and, and following on to the FCA and the PRA, I just found the whole topic and topics, the variety incredibly interesting and, and also engaging, particularly, I guess, I think as I've heard you talk about previously or, or, or other compliance professionals, the, the broad range or scope that you get exposed to within firms, be it at a senior management level, at board level, but also the, the kind of the impact that you can have um, within these firms with the, with the work that you do. So I think they're probably the things that's kind of stood out to me that I, I quite enjoyed um, in, in when I was working in, in professional services. But I think then moving into industry i think the the opportunity or the the excitement with regards to conduct risk is i guess again it's the variety but again you're, you're helping the bank to kind of achieve its objectives but also you're very clear that one of your key roles is kind of advocating for customers and, and trying to ensuring that you know customers are at the center of what we're doing be it in in kind of designing new products um, and services so you know it's quite an interesting role quite varied yeah. is probably probably i guess what you also kind of can sound yeah. like a bit of a cliche but it's, it's the variety of you know being involved in in developing a new product but also being involved in culture initiatives which are obviously incredibly topical and relevant to, to conduct risk but also you know being engaged with the, the central bank as well and, and understanding their perspective and, and what their priorities as well so it, it's a huge kind of range yeah. Of, of, of areas and topics and, and lots of stakeholders as well so what would you see as the importance of conduct risk Kian? yeah I, I think again it's quite a quite a relevant um question kathy i think conduct risk as a, as a term is still relatively new to a lot of people uh, and what it, what it means but i think one thing that we're all aware of is i guess the, the significant kind of conduct failings that you alluded to also in the introduction you know we don't have to look too far you know in, in ireland for example we're st- you know our customers are still dealing with the aftermath of the tracker mortgage scandal which has then also cost firms you know in excess of one and a half billion i think i saw in in, in the news today in in the news this week you know in the uk firms have, have had to deal, deal with the ppi scandal which Again, is is in excess of 50 billion, and you know there's there's other kind of reports and publications out there that you know kind of capture the, the hundreds of billions of fines and sanctions and costs associated with poor conduct. And I think you know the root cause is 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 around kind of poor poor conduct and, and bad decisions. I think the conduct risk, the element of conduct risk, is around being able to identify where the elements of poor conduct are, are occurring or crystallizing, and being able to then put in place remedial actions, and also be able to kind of measure are we making progress or are we man- managing our risk of poor conduct? So it's absolutely the, the risk management tool. It's, it's the risk which is mitigated through responsible behaviour. That's the responsible behaviour element that is really the responsibility across the, the kind of the three lines of defence and top down and bottom up conduct risk is, 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 is the risk that that manages. And, and just to that point, could you give our listeners a sketch of what you think are the elements of a sound conduct risk framework? I guess notwithstanding what we just spoke about, you know, the purpose of a, a conduct yeah. risk framework is, is to allow us to identify poor behaviour and take remedial action. I do think because of the, the, the relative recent developments in this space, I think individuals or firms can still find it a challenge to, I guess, articulate what a framework should be or what it should look like. I think supervisors um, within Europe and abroad have kind of given us some, you know, kind of very clear steers of what, as what an outline of a framework should look like. But it's not been as prescriptive as, say, something like a, a credit risk management framework where, you know, you've got, you've got many rules and clear rules, black and white rules. 
to CRD or CRO, you've got Basel principles surrounding how you should manage that risk. So I guess that's part of the opportunity as well. When I think about a conduct risk management framework, there's probably four key elements that people should be kind of keeping in mind when they're, when they're either developing or, or assessing their own. I think they would be, that needs to be meaningful and, and, and I guess tailored to firms, not just a retrofit. It, it needs to be authentic. The scope. So, you know, being clear what's in the scope of our framework, outside the scope of our framework is, is crucial. And then you've got the buy-in piece. So buy-in is, is probably probably one of the most crucial elements because without that, the framework just becomes an electronic file that sits on, a, on an internet website somewhere and it, it doesn't get embedded it doesn't have the desired impact. And that's um, buy-in from the top down and the bottom up that I think is incredibly crucial. And I think then the fourth element is reporting because, you know, without reporting, you can provide no insight to stakeholders, either inside your firm or outside to external stakeholders as to how you're actually managing the risk or indeed if you're making any progress. And that and again, that's probably one of the key challenges as well, which is around developing kind of um, constructive management information. That's really helpful, actually. So if we if we dig in a little bit into into those mm-hmm. four criteria, so could you tell us a bit more about what you mean by mean, a meaningful conduct risk framework? Sure. So I think for the framework to be meaningful, you know, it's important that you know you, you take the time to research and probably I'd say take a couple of steps back and understand. You know, that there's been a lot written out there are published, should I say, be it across the, the central bank. You mentioned some of those publications earlier. You know, the FCA has published quite extensively in relation to conduct of business, but also conduct questions. Again, similar at, a, at, a, um, at an EBA level. So there's, there's a lot out there. But I think the starting point when you've kind of taken the time to kind of familiarize yourself with that is to kind of take, take a step back and consider you know, a couple of key definitions. And um, for me, they're your definition around what conduct risk is for your firm and also what your conduct risk appetite is for your firm. And I think when you read, um, again, what's published, you know, there's many different definitions. You, you referenced one in, in the introduction, but there's many different definitions. But I think when you boil all of them then they probably kind of, I, in my view, they would kind of boil into kind of three kind of three themes. And they typically kind of would center on, you know, the impact your firm can have on your customers, the impact your, your firm can have in relation to a developing relationship of trust, with your customers and stakeholders, and then also the impact your firm has on on the integrity of, of the market that you operate in, or as a, as we also kind of consider it, society as well. So you know, a, a good okay. definition should be considering those factors, but tailored to your firm, and I guess similarly then with your with your with your with your risk appetite. And I think you know the next is quite simple. The rest of it is quite simple in so much as it just follows your standard risk management framework in terms of you know you identify, yes, measure, mm-hmm. monitor. And then report. Now that, that's probably simplifying it a bit too much, but you know, I think once you've you're clear on what your definitions are, the rest, you know, becomes easier. Thanks, Kian. You mentioned scope as well. So what would the scope of a typical conduct risk framework be if there is such a thing? Sure. And again, again, this is part of the, the, the opportunity with regards to a conduct risk framework. There's no defined hard and fast scope of what must be in and what um, must be out. And I think, you know. Again, it's, it's taking a step back and considering for your firm, where does it start and where does it end? And I think being clear on the, on the, on the scope of the framework, it, it's a key element to assisting your own colleagues as well to understand what's meant by conduct risk in your firms. Because if, if you can be clear and they're clear, there's a chance that you can, you'll be able to work through it together. You know, I, I think there is undoubtedly a, a core element of any conduct risk framework has to focus on, on the hard rules. And again, you touched on some of the many enhanced provisions codes, regulations that have come in in the last number of years. So I guess in, in my view, they're the minimum standard 
but risk and an effective conduct risk framework should have some kind of clear principles alongside that to kind of steer us to move beyond and I guess move into what I guess some regulate, regulators might call the spirit of the regulation. So I think it's it's a combination of having kind of a clear approach to addressing those minimum standards from a regulatory perspective, but also clear principles that people can then use when dealing with some more difficult converse, uh, dilemmas or, 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 or decisions. But I think importantly then what needs to sit beneath that kind of your framework are your kind of your key um, so again, every firm is different, but you know, probably one of the key policies that we have in place beneath our framework is our policy on speaking up and, and protecting and protection of disclosures. Because um, you know, it's a fundamental element where people can speak up freely. You invariably, you know, you can address issues quicker and probably make improvements quicker. Uh, that's a key part with, within within our framework. Okay, Kian, you mentioned some principles there. Do you want to talk to us a little bit more about the kind of principles that you would expect to see? It's important that these principles kind of go alongside your um, your 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 minimum requirements, or should we call it kind of red lines, and, and they should be consistent with, I guess, your, your your business and your your offering to customers as well. But you know, to my mind, if there's kind of three key principles, I'd be kind of looking around kind of clear customer communications principles around acting in customers' interests, and then developing and, and maintaining relationships of trust. And um, again, you know, that that goes beyond customers it's the it's the broader stakeholder grouping as well i think within those kind of three principles being clear on what actions you're taking or you would take to achieve those principles so you know what actions would your firm take to be able to demonstrate in customers interests consistently what what kind of tools or guides could you put in place to assist all kind of colleagues across the first, second and third line of defense to be acting in customers' interests consistently? So is that something like defining a, um, a series of customer outcomes that you want to achieve for customers? Is that about having a very clear approach to the fair treatment of vulnerable customers, which is you know an incredibly sensitive topic, but incredibly important too? And I guess who are those documents so you know culture plays a big part of this as well and i think compliance because of maybe the nature of, of us as professionals we, we we tend to invariably know what the right thing to do is so if we can't if we're struggling to get by in our firm to kind of define you know what what it means to act in customers interests we may you know pursue the path of least resistance and develop a policy and own and then we become the owners of this policy around the fair treatment of customers but then it, it becomes conceived that this is a compliance policy it's a compliance requirement and it becomes difficult to embed. It becomes a challenge. And it, again, it becomes nothing more than, a, than, a, than an electronic document. Whereas if you can empower or facilitate, be it senior management and, and the first line, to take this on and take it on as, as their responsibility to define what it means to act in customers' interests, mm-hmm. what you invariably then find is that it becomes embedded in strategic documents, it becomes embedded in how you develop products so much easier and it becomes a, a way of working so much easier because... It, you, you can see your management within within your firm and um, leaders within your firm you know talking this language it doesn't need to be regulatory language but it's it's talk it's 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 it's, it's kind of addressing both priorities yeah. that culture how important is that then to just circling back to buy-in which you said was was very important in, in establishing a conduct framework and of course compliance officers are always it, it, ca- it has been in the past a struggle to get buy-in so how important is it in the conduct risk space to get that buy-in I think it's incredibly important because without without a positive culture, you know, you will not be you'll not be successful at mitigating conduct risk. You'll have you know you'll have you can certainly create you know fabulous looking documents. You can have you can have fabulous registers of controls, mm-hmm. 
but they'll become invariably just nothing more than, than checklists if the culture isn't right. And ownership around responsible behavior is not kind of taken across across the bank. All of the, I guess, the five banks have, are, have you know, since, I guess, 2018 have been going on their individual culture and behavior journey. I think, you know, looking at it from, from our own perspective, you know, I think where we've been successful is where, you know, senior management have, have been very and very quick to take ownership around defining what responsible behavior means for the bank and what it means for colleagues, what it means in terms of outcomes for customers. And that naturally then, you know, flows into a, a way of working every day so you know it actually if it's working well it becomes a great help to the compliance professional because straight away it becomes one of our key mitigants because you begin to see it fall into um, policies you see it falling into into controls and that sort of thing you know as, as the old cliche goes what gets measured gets done and you mentioned reporting as a key element in a in the conduct risk framework so do you want to tell us a bit more about that and i think the mi is certainly you know it's one of the areas that i you know probably probably took me the most amount of time to consider and it, it and it's still you know it's still a very much an evolving piece and I think it needs to be evolving because you know the risks that we face in, in our organizations are constantly evolving and they're constantly changing be it because of the introduction of a new product or because of the introduction of of something that's outside of our control so for example you know COVID for example you know COVID you know in the last year has certainly introduced a whole other variable that wasn't um, something that we would have ever considered this time last year. But going back to around, you know, developing MI, again, the, with regards to MI, it goes back to the, if you've invested enough time in defining conduct risk for you and defining your conduct risk appetite, the MI should kind of, you know, you should be able to categorize it in terms of using it to provide comfort to yourself that you're mitigating the risk and you're operating within within your risk appetite. So again, if you go back to those kind of three core elements around um, the impact on customers, the market behaviors, I would very much think about the product and the customer lifecycle and what, you know, what metrics you would have in there to to gain comfort that we're kind of considering those kind of three areas, be it kind of impact on customer, impact on on, on the market and the, the impact. So where are so when, when we're considering those three principles, we very much always think about that definition, considering the product and the customer lifecycle and also our behaviors. So you know, trying to, to define MI that's aligned at least with those kind of five categories. Again, you know, nothing similar to what you would see in the CPRA in terms of those, those that product and customer lifecycle. So, notwithstanding, notwithstanding the the element around, um, you know, taking the time to make sure your 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 MI reflects your your definitions. One one particular piece of MI that that I found, you know, incredibly helpful and I guess insight and provides insight. Um, to to other stakeholders is the tracking of conduct costs or the tracking of, of conduct losses within 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 the firm. Um, and now it can take some time to you know kind of define your methodology around what you consider a conduct cost. But once you once you begin tracking it and you've got consistency around the definition, it can actually begin to offer you know some quite interesting insights as to how much um, poor conduct uh, co- poor conduct is actually costing your firm. Um, and you know, it can drive some quite interesting debates as well. Um, and again, it, it's not dissimilar to say, you know, what we would have seen, what you would see in say the, the conduct cost project um, that I referenced um, before. But you know, that that's you know, money is is probably quite a binary and quite a simple metric, but it's something that people typically understand. Um, and that you know, it can be quite interesting. This is most likely not going to be a surprise to listeners, but developing meaningful MI and conduct risk updates can be a real challenge. Perhaps it's also linked to what I mentioned before 
about you know the challenge of developing the framework and the subject subjectivity that it, that can exist within it. So as a result, there's no prescribed list of conduct risk MI metrics that we can complete or, or, pro, or provide ourselves with comfort that we're managing or monitoring our conduct risk. So I guess the, the question remains: How can we overcome this pitfall and be and go beyond you know just noting that MI must be smart. When, so when developing or refining our metrics, there are probably four aspects that I'd consider. One is around operating within our definition of conduct risk and conduct risk appetite. So again, it goes back to what I was saying before, it's how it's really important to take that time at the beginning to, to really ensure that what you're defining is reflective of your firm and meaningful in that regard. Because otherwise, you know, if you were to just take a regulatory definition that may exist, so, you know, the, the one that's one of the central banks definition, which again, there's nothing wrong with it, but the definition, one of the definitions I've seen is around conduct risk being the, the risk the firm poses to customers and its direct interaction with them. So if you were to take that and as your definition as a firm and build your MI off that, the risk that you will probably invariably encounter is that you, your MI will become incredibly one-dimensional. It will just become narrow, it will just focus narrowly on your customer interactions. So be it consumer protection errors or breaches or complaints, but it wouldn't consider the broader product and customer life cycle or the impact conduct risk has on the integrity of our markets or the behaviors of our colleagues. So again, that's why it's really important to take that time with, with the definition. And I think when you put those kind of those categories down, you can you know naturally begin to think about well, what could I use to measure that? And again, if you're you know if you're still struggling or you're working from scratch, a kind of a cheat <laughs> or a, a, a shortcut is to you know also take the time to understand what metrics already exist in your firms. Because you shouldn't be putting yourself under too much pressure to be trying to reinvent the wheel here. Because, you know, naturally within our firms, we all have obligations in relation to, you know, resolving complaints, resolving operational risk events, resolving consumer protection errors, resolving breaches. So what MI already exists in terms of ensuring that, that, those, that those elements get done? And you can naturally begin to see them fit into you know the product and the customer life cycle and you know the benefit of that is that you're probably able to get these metrics from other parts of the business and you don't need to spend you know or invest a significant amount of time in collating them yourself or within your team but you know an example of what you could do with you know that collation of mi from different parts of the bank right or your, your firm so for example if you were to take if you were to look at volume of complaints you know upheld complaints maybe overdue product governance actions or and look at maybe um, the volume of breaches per business unit when you're to collectively look at those you, you might be getting them from different parts of the firm but when you look at them together you may actually begin to identify trends in a particular business area or a particular, or a particular product line that you know you believe warrants some additional attention so that's why i mean about you know look look to your broader firm you know where you already have mi available and i guess if you're still at a complete loss you know there are a couple of documents out there again you know publicly available documents published by supervisors so again there's a, there's a number of useful suggestions that exist already in the cpra and also you know many years ago it must be about 12 or 13 years ago now at this stage the fsa as it was the precursor to the to the fca you know did publish quite a lengthy document around um treating customers fairly um, an mi guide wherein you know, they do they do make you know pair kind of the you know some of us may be familiar with the, the with the treating customer fairly principles the customer outcomes and there are some kind of indicative mi suggested in that it's not necessarily that you should be just adopting those on a, on a, on a blanket basis but i guess again familiarizing yourself with what exists to understand you know what could work for you because you know through our various systems that we have it may not always be possible to to be pulling this information exactly as it's described in someone else's publication so that's around your kind of your real kind of quantitative temp type mi the other part of 
MI that I find, you know, can offer up quite a degree of insight is around, you know, taking the time to kind of do impact assessments on sanctions that get published. So, you know, we touched on briefly around, you know, some of the, say, you know, track of mortgage PPI, but obviously there's, there's many other sanctions are published throughout, throughout a year of different firms and taking those and, you know, considering them and assessing if there's an impact for your firm and is there scope for, yeah. you know, improving or making enhancements. Yeah. What I would also say with that, you know, don't just do that in isolation. So again, this can be the tendency of the of compliance professionals to take this sanction and just look at it in a, like as an island what i what i tend to do and what has worked well is that you know you involve you know colleagues from the relevant business units within the firm you know look at the sanction together and ask them to you know do they think that we've got any of these issues and you know the likelihood is you know you may identify some enhancements but the, the real positive piece around that is that you're actually facilitating the first line to find those issues themselves yeah. and then come up with their own actions to address them. So you've actually improved the environment without, you know, having to go down the route of, you know, a formal compliance monitoring yeah. or a formal internal audit. But you're you're ending up in a, in a much more positive space without having to expend the energy required around, you know, setting up a, a formal audit or a formal compliance monitoring review. So they're probably the kind of the four key elements that I kind of consider when thinking about developing MI and reporting. And what role do you see the compliance professional playing in managing conduct risk? Sure. So I, I would say there, there probably being three kind of key roles for, for, for compliance professionals. One is the actual oversight of the conduct risk framework. We will obviously go to, as compliance professionals, go to great lengths to, to design this framework, but we need to make sure it's, it's working. And it's living. So, you know, understanding are the business units identifying their conduct risks? Are they identifying mitigating controls? What insights is, is that providing? The second, I guess, key piece that the, I see the compliance professional playing in this is, is advisory, you know, because that's fundamentally what we are. We are an advisory function. So, you know, it's, it's really important where, you know, the business units can trust us that will provide, you know, relevant advice, but also robust advice. That even if it's if it's if it's a difficult message and it's maybe not something that they wish to hear, in terms of it may impact a product that they're willing wishing to bring to market, but that we're we're able to demonstrate to them that they that they can trust us, um, in terms of that the advice that we provide is 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 fair uh, and reflects um, not just the the regulation but um, say again our principles within within conduct risk. And then I guess the the third element is um, monitoring. So the monitoring that we'll do be it through uh, formal compliance monitoring activities um, to assess, again, if the, if the framework is, is being adhered to. And I guess identifying those areas for enhancement and making, you know, and helping the business units improve their, their management of, of conduct risk. So that they're, they'd be the, the kind of the three kind of key elements. I've also seen conduct risk defined as the threat of financial loss to an organisation caused by the poor judgment of managers and employees. So having dealt with the, the second line responsibilities what does the role of the first line play in the management of conduct risk i think invariably what you will see is that conduct risk issues and events will almost always originate within within our first line of defense and you know that could be something that's relatively innocuous that isn't a loss event or it could be something more serious where there is customer detriment to my mind the crucial role that the first line have to play here is that they have the strength of character and willingness to speak up 
where these issues are occurring and be it to log them formally, be it whatever you know process you have internally, or in the first instance, try and have a, seek to have a conversation with, with their second line function. And remember that we're there to support. So whatever about the remediation and resolution that obviously comes after, but to me, the, the crew that the first line has with you know poor decisions or poor outcomes is, is speaking up and, and seeking support. And I think that's where compliance has a key role, just generally, not just with regards to conduct risk, but in terms of you know creating our own culture and awareness that you know should you know someone come talk to us from outside of compliance, you know where something has happened, that they know that they can speak to us in a free way and yeah. you know not be concerned that they will be you know um, looked down upon because an issue has occurred it is you know as a result of their own doing, but you know but to champion yeah. and yeah. To kind of you know be appreciative of the fact that they've got the willingness to come and talk to you because they know it needs to be addressed. Yeah. Because without that willingness to come forward, um, the issue will invariably be, become, just be compounded. It'll, it'll get worse. It could result in further customer detriment and, you know, also detriment to the firm. No one, no one wants to see that. But I also do think, you know, the second line does have an incredibly important role in making sure, you know, we do call out what the right thing to do is. Because it's one thing for you know the first one to come and tell us and share share an issue with us. We also still then have the responsibility, even if it's an unpopular piece of advice, to call it what the right thing to do is. What's important there is the environment that I guess our senior yeah. management create for us. Again, for our own, for you know compliance professionals not to fear the impact of calling out implications, particularly where they could perceive to be negative. And there's there's support for compliance um, in that regard. Yes, because they could lead to extra costs or mm-hmm. management time or... There can be a natural hesitation where it's perceived that it might be an event that we may need to inform the central bank about. And I think, obviously, we, we all have our reporting obligations. And it goes back to that piece of being an advisor and a, and, and a support to the business unit. So, you know, whilst it may be something that needs to be reported to the central bank, it's about explaining to them that, you know, this is what's going to happen. You know, it's the right thing to do for A, B and C reason and we'll, we'll work this through and come to the right outcome. Because I guess in, in my own my own perspective and, and experience, typically the right outcome for a customer uh, or an outcome that's in the customer's interest will invariably be in our kind of long-term interest and kind of yeah. contribute to a, you know, a sustainable business model. Okay, Kian. So looking internationally, how do conduct of business rules differ across the European economic area and what can we learn from other jurisdictions experience? I think at the core, they do not really tend to differ, particularly okay. because I guess invariably they are, they're pretty much derived from, from European directives. So if it's the, you know, the mortgage credit, direct, credit, credit directive or if it's MIFID, you know, we are all working within, within the same directives. I think where you see maybe a, a difference, I think locally in Ireland, you know, I think the central bank has been incredibly kind of forward looking in relation to you know, some of the provisions or obligations that it, it places on firms to protect customers. You don't necessarily see that kind of quite kind of prescriptive nature in you know, throughout, throughout Europe. You know, so be it around um, complaint resolution or be it around um, customer impacting errors. So I don't think you see quite that kind of prescriptive nature, but I think what I think experience would show is that they're actually incredibly important kind of provisions yeah. and they, they serve a, a, such a, they serve an incredibly valuable purpose from a, from a customer yeah. perspective as well. But I think, you know, looking across in order KVC group um, in, in, yeah. in Europe, in, in, in the, in its other kind of core countries, you certainly don't see the same level of kind of focus on kind of conduct risk to the, to the same extent that, 
I guess, who are being encouraged or directed to within Ireland. And I think, you know, what that invariably is resulting in, I think, you know, institutions here are having a much greater focus on doing the right thing for customers and acting in customers' interests. And I think what, what we, you know, within KVC, we're seeing is that, you know, the group invariably actually looks to us within our, in terms of uh, wow. learning lessons around kind of, you know, consumer protection in, initiatives or, or, or developments, um, particularly, obviously, with regards to, say, you know, conduct risk generally. Obviously, you know, MIFID is, is, is an incredibly strong and, and prescriptive um, element. But, you know, that's, you know, yeah. that's something that we kind of, I guess, support the broader group on predominantly on the on the on the more kind of subjective kind of elements of conduct risk or, or consumer protection. OK, so that's really interesting. So potentially our central bank and through our firms are, are, are driving standards up potentially across Europe. I, mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, I think it's broadly acknowledged that the, the central bank here and I guess also maybe the, the FCA in the UK are probably probably the two of the most forthright um, supervisors in, in, in this space around culture and um, fair treatment of customers. Great, okay. Um, and what regulatory developments should our listeners look out for in the coming months in conduct? I mean, I, I think this this list could be quite a long list when you extend it over, over a number of months. Um, I think if I was to whittle it down to um, maybe maybe four, I think we'll put the obvious of uh, obvious one of SEER maybe till the end. But I think one that I guess we've been looking at quite closely, and I think will be will have a huge positive impact, will be around the, the Assisted Decision Making Act when 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 that comes in, particularly with regards to looking after vulnerable customers. I think that that that's going to be quite a quite a, quite a powerful change when, when that comes in. The whistleblowing directive within within again, it's a, it's a European directive that is. Yeah, I guess we're we're still waiting for kind of clarity and deadlines locally but obviously it'll be some point this year again this is this is quite important from from my own perspective i think you know because i think that it adds further it adds further kind of clarity around the responsibility on firms to increase transparency with regards to how they manage whistleblowing processes and also to i guess to further assist would be whistleblowers or people that make a protected disclosure aware of they, you know how they should expect to be treated and i think speaking of making protected disclosures is something that i guess we've put quite kind of central in kind of our own responsible behavior framework within 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 KBC obviously in, you know in the coming months we've, we've got we've got some work to do in relation to um, ESG disclosures so you know from from our investments side which I'm sure is, is taking up the time of, of, of many of many firms at the moment but again it, it's also you know incredibly important and another step in the right on doing the right thing I think as we see that come in in the first part of this year and then being further refined in in 2021 I think that's going to lead to I guess again much much better transparency for customers or, or clients around um, their their investment opportunities and I think you know what I'm sure everyone is aware of is is the impact that SEER may have on 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 firms conduct as a as a collective but also on individuals and I think that that will be probably the, the biggest part I think that will come out of SEER will be all the discussions and debates that it will drive internally within our firms and it will really you know i guess my experience in the uk would 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 lead me to believe that it would also shine a very bright light on our governance arrangements within our firms and again drive debate and discussion about what it means to take reasonable steps it will um again highlight you know what our responsibilities are for for certain roles and what we should be doing and being clear on how we're achieving those responsibilities so i Think that you know, whilst it will take quite a significant degree of resource to effect, I think it will leave leave our firms in a in a, in a better situation, better position to demonstrate how we're we're acting, I guess, responsibly, and also allow, I guess, external stakeholders to see that you know people will be held to account where their um, 
their behaviors are, are kind of are, are not what's expected and obviously you know much of that is already captured within in within the existing fitness and probity regime you know people draw a lot of comparisons with the senior managers regime in the uk but i think the gap between you know what we what requirements we've got here with regards to fitness and probity and seer are probably not as broad as the as the gap the uk had to bridge in relation to okay. its previous control function regime and seer so i think you know the central bank is, is is probably further along in 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 the, in the existing framework than what this the, the UK regulator was at the same time. And finally, Kian, conduct risk is obviously here to stay. What do you see as the developments in the years to come? Personally, I think many firms, whether they're of a, of a retail or a wholesale variety, are still very much on their risk framework journey. Be it in developing it, um, implementing, or embedding. And I think the 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 probably the most important piece that we we take on our conduct risk journey is that we continue to evolve and maybe be i might be so bold as to say mm-hmm. innovate because you know we just discussed a moment ago about you know some regulatory some of the regulatory change that's coming down you know, there will be there will always be a constant degree of change i think for our conduct risk frameworks to be relevant and meaningful they need to continue to evolve and i think looking at some of the i guess the changes that you know we may experience as firms or as, as compliance functions that we need to address or support our firms in addressing. I think without doubt, you know, significant ones is around the digitalization of yeah. financial services and the impact it has on, you know, potentially excluding people from being able to avail of financial services. I think, you know, personally, that's where firms that have a mixture of bricks and mortar and a digital presence still have such a significant role to play because it's all to move to, a, to an online platform. I think it would have a, you know, a real actual detrimental effect on the broader society and the, yeah. the market, I guess, that we're supposed to be also be serving. So yeah. I think yeah. as compliance professionals, I think we've got a real important role there to continue kind of, I guess, championing that, yeah. that, you know, that, you know, certain groups of customers can't be left behind because of um, sometimes elements that are beyond, beyond their, uh, beyond their control. And I guess then obviously, you know, alongside that, we've got the, we need to continually kind of reassess our communication channels with customers. So, you know, many of our firms are moving to a world where we're focusing an awful lot on, on, on in-app notifications. So these are obviously quite different to, I guess, yeah. you know, past customer communications, be it marketing or, or notifications. So again, we need to, we need to, we need to pivot and kind of reconsider what's important in, 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 in ensuring that those communications are appropriate. So we need to keep pivoting and, and changing as, as the industry continues to innovate. Because I think, to, you know, to stand still, frameworks will become irrelevant and, you know, it, it won't serve the purpose, which will be, which is to kind of, I guess, protect protect our, our customers and also assist the, our firms in having kind of a sustainable way of doing business. Well, thanks for that, Kian, And thank you for, for your insights today. That's been a really, really interesting chat that we've had, and I'm sure it'll be really useful for our members. Thank you. Thanks, Kathy. We are delighted to announce our second new educational offering in 2021, the Professional Certificate in Anti-Money Laundering in a Fintech Environment, will commence on the 14th of April. ACOI and Professional Accountancy Training have collaborated on designing a contemporary practitioner-focused course that will provide professionals, practitioners and other stakeholders with the skills and competencies that support a culture of AML compliance. This course addresses AML requirements from the perspective of a variety of sectors in the context of the technologically driven innovation in financial services. This highly interactive course will be delivered online once a week over 18 evenings by a team of industry professionals from across the fintech ecosystem. Details on the professional certificate can be found on the ACY website or email us at info at 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.